This is the Interdisciplinary Life Podcast, Episode 2. This week we're talking to educators and parents about heading back to school in an age of social justice and COVID-19. My guests are Berkeley Unified School District teachers Leah Elkala, Michael Hammond, and Shoshana O'Keefe. Hello and welcome to the Interdisciplinary Life Podcast. This is episode two and I'm really excited this week because I have three guests who are going to be able to give us some really unique perspective on what's going on with school districts and I think at first this might seem like it's really like hyper locally specific but I do think that the things that they're going to have to say are going to be applicable to people really across the country all of us who are going through the same things, uh, either as educators or as parents trying to get back to school. Um, and so I'll let them all introduce themselves in a minute, but I will say that uh, I think what really gives this panel a really unique perspective on what's going on is that, so they all teach in the same school district. Um, they're also all parents, so they're looking at this issue not just as educators, but also as people who have kids, uh, many of whom are within this district where they teach. Um, one of the other interesting things about this group is they all are also alums of the district where they teach. So they all, uh, along with myself, grew up in in the district, and so they've seen how it's changed, not just for us as students to parents, but students to people who are now teaching in the district. Um, and I will also add for full disclosure, uh, these are all friends of mine. Uh, we've been in school together at different points of our lives, but I was kind of doing some quick math and uh, we've all been friends for almost 30 years at the minimum and much longer than that in some cases. So with that as the introduction, I will turn this over and let you introduce yourselves. Um, I will start with what in my panel is top left and come around counterclockwise. So we'll start with Michael. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Hammond. I teach music for Berkeley Unified. Uh, I've been doing that for 10 years. Uh, before that, I was in New York City for six years. So starting my 17th year of education. Um, I teach at both the middle school and then I also teach at several of the elementary schools. I teach at one of the middle schools, which is Longfellow. Uh, there's also King and Willard. I taught at King for about five years and I've been at Longfellow for about five years. Um, and then in the middle of the day, I go around and teach at, uh, Rosal Parks and Malcolm X and Craigmont and Thousand Oaks and, um, so I am excited to be here and share some of my thoughts on, on what it is to be a teacher in these times and a parent. My son is starting third grade. I guess that's part of it too. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, Shoshana, would you like, I, and it's funny cause like having known everyone for so long, I always want to introduce people with their wrong last name. So <laughs> apologies if I, uh, if I mess up. Um, I'm Shoshana O'Keefe. It's my new last name. Only, I've only had it 15 years, so you know you have a little time to remember. Um, so I teach at Berkeley High. Um, I teach math and computer science. 
with the retirement of the other computer science teacher, I've now become pretty much most of the computer science department um, for next year. And um, I also have two kids, two boys. One is uh, gonna also going to be going into third grade. He's at Malcolm X. And then my other one is going into sixth grade, and he would be going to King, except um, we actually have him going to a private school in San Francisco. So that's kind of a, I know that sounds so like bougie, doesn't it? <laughs> but I, I bring that up because um, I am expecting the experience of online learning to be somewhat different um, in the private schools. There's a lot of differences in you know the kinds of problems they have to manage, and things like that. So. Um, so yeah, I have a, a lot of different perspectives coming, coming my way. I don't have them yet, but I'm looking forward to them. Well, you do. And, and part of this is also, you know, what I want to be able to talk to you guys about is, is the anticipation of it, right? Because we don't know what's going to happen exactly, right? Like we know, and you guys know a lot better than I do at this point, sort of what the plan is, but we know how plans go, especially <laughs> in large bureaucracies. Um, and so even just getting your perspective on what you think will be different at this point, I think will be really valuable. Um, with that, we will move on to Leah. Hi guys, I'm Leah Alkla. I've been teaching for 20 years now. I teach in the math department with Shoshana and I used to teach at King with Michael. I've also taught middle school math and high school math and I have three kids. I have a 17 year old rising senior. I have a 12 year old who's going into seventh grade and I have a four year old who was in preschool and we just took him out of preschool for the next year. So he's going to be my sidekick as I teach. Um, that's great. Yeah. And as some of my audience knows, but I will uh, say for anyone who's new, um, I have three kids. I have a rising sixth grader, so this will be the first middle school year, and that one also not staying in Berkeley Unified, but going to Oakland School for the Arts, which is a an arts-based charter school in Oakland. Uh, I have a kid going into fourth grade in BUSD, and a five-year-old who would have been going into kindergarten uh, and was in preschool, and that's like the big conundrum one for us because the other two can deal. Like the oldest can deal for sure. The middle kid can probably figure it out, and the youngest, it's that's where we're you know pulling out pulling out the hair there trying <laughs> to figure it out. Um, so I guess the first question I kind of want to go a little bit a little bit chronologically, loosely chronologically, and ask you guys uh, sort of what changes from the time when you were students in the district to now being teachers? I, I would just like to start by saying I think there's a really a huge group of amazing kids in the district and a huge group of amazing teachers in the district, and I think that's been true for a long time and continues to be true. I think just culturally now with screens and Instagram, I think that kids have a whole new way of connecting that's very different than we did as a kid. It's very much more from a distance already, even when they're kind of next to each other, they can all be on their screens. So I think that they're experiencing childhood differently than we did for sure. 
Yeah, um, another big difference, uh, I'm sure you guys will both agree, is that um, Berkeley Unified is way less diverse than it was when we were kids. Um, and Ildi is about my age. I don't know, um, Michael, what year you were, but you look more or less our age, give or take a couple of years, I don't know. Um, and I just, I remember, uh, you know, it, it felt as a white student in Berkeley Public Schools, I'd never felt like I was in the majority. I certainly was in my peer group because Berkeley High is and was very um, self-segregated. So, um, so there was that, but looking at the school, the student body as a whole, it really, it felt very diverse. There was really like, there wasn't one demographic that really, um, that really dominated. And I think it's, it's way, way more white than it used to be. Um, Berkeley High, a lot more. And then when I look at like, like a, a class at Malcolm X, I can't believe how white it is. Um, the, so I think the upcoming um, classes are going to be even less diverse than they were. And that's, that's a big difference. You can, you can feel it. I really saw that happen dramatically in 2008 after the financial crisis. I had the diversity in my class in the middle of the year went to almost all white. Wow. It was was heartbreaking. Yeah, I wasn't teaching then. Yeah, one kid after another was like, I'm moving to Antioch, I'm moving to Pittsburgh, I'm moving to Stockton, and then they'd be gone. Wow. I was going to say that I think when we were at Berkeley High, maybe, I can't remember the exact stats, but I was watching the that frontline documentary that they did. I was in my freshman year at Berkeley High. Um, it's a, it's it's down to like eighteen uh, percent African American at Berkeley High, and I think at the time that we were there, it might have been at thirty or higher. Um, I teach at Longfellow, so there you you don't you you see a lot of diversity at Longfellow, which I am really happy to see, but I, I know that it, it kind of depends on which school you're at and, and lots of different things. And I think as the cost of living has skyrocketed in the Bay Area, that's affecting a lot of these kind of issues too. Leah kind of already touched on this, but one thing that is the same about Berkeley High, and that's, I'm going to speak mostly to Berkeley High because that's that's what I know and love. I didn't, I didn't even go to elementary school in the district. I started it at middle school. Um, but Berkeley High is, I, I, I say this a lot, I really think it's the best high school in the entire country. Um, not academically, I don't think you can back that up, but uh, <laughs> I, there's something about, there's this magic to it. Um, the, the way the students are, are empowered to speak their minds and to think independently um, and to sort of do what they want and act in the world as, as fully owned human beings, owning themselves. And, and there's so much brilliance and creativity there. There's some secret magic about Berkeley High and I think it's so beautiful. And it, I felt it when I went there and I feel it now and it hasn't changed at all. And I think it's been that way for the whole history of the school. And I'm, I'm really happy to see. Yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll say as, you know, as a, as a Berkeley High graduate, that Berkeley High is this huge Jekyll and Hyde institution for me. And I think that that's gonna be true anytime you have a school that size. And so to give people outside of Berkeley a little context, our, it's the only public high school in town. And when we were there, at least, it had 4,000 students. 
Um, I don't know if it's bigger or smaller than that now. It's 3,400. Okay. So not that much different. And that, I mean, that's a huge number of people to put together in, in a school campus, you know, at that age. I mean, I remember going on field trips and we would drive through towns that didn't have 4,000 people. Um, and my most recent student teacher was commenting how his like college was smaller than my high school. Yeah. And I think there's a tremendous diversity of experiences within that group. And so Berkeley High absolutely is the place that you describe, Shosh, but it's also like this place of tremendous despair and oppression and marginalization. And it's interesting because, right, you do have this, this self-expression going to the, like the School of Colors documentary where you have Bailek Folklorico and you have this great Afro-Haitian dance department, you have African-American studies and Chicano-Latino studies and you have all that. And those kids do get to express themselves in all those ways and then still get marginalized when they're in, you know, English and chemistry and, and or those classes. Math. Or, well, I wasn't going to say math to a couple of maths. <laughs> Um, well, you won't get any arguments from either of us. But yeah. the, uh, the positive aspects that you're talking about really, I think, are due to the faculty that they continue to bring in and the overall just culture and history of the school. And, and when I talked to my mom about her time at Berkeley High, you know, it, it, was, it felt to me like it was her generation that brought a lot of that forward. Right now, obviously we have two sort of huge storylines going on in our country related to sort of society overall and specifically education and that's COVID and, and social justice and social justice themes within a curriculum are not new to Berkeley. They're not new to the Bay area. And so sort of, I guess my next question is what have you all seen Again, sort of, if you want to give it historical context from when we were there, taking uh, the first ethnic required ethnic studies classes uh, through to today in terms of having social justice as part of the curriculum and, and what's maybe changed for you all as teachers from, you know, 2014 Ferguson sort of times through to now. For me, and I want to hear what everyone else has to say too, what is really remarkable about this time is that we are seeing how important school is for so many things more than just education right now. And I think my hope, my hope for what comes out of this is not necessarily this year, but next year or whenever we get back to school where we can be together as a community, that we provide a school that meets the needs of our community, not just like educational sorting. So I hope that we really learn from what parents want right now. It's that they don't just want education. It's not like Zoom to their kids is going to be enough. They want the exercise and the socialization and the daycare and the food and the health services and the occupational services and, and the education. And I think we as educators just need to kind of broaden what we are trying to provide. I mean, Berkeley High has been trying to provide all those things, but always with kind of education held up at the highest. And I think we need to recognize that we serve more than just that purpose. I think that 
in the time that I've been in the district, uh, just the voice of the students uh, continues to, to be honored and continues to be um, put at the forefront of ideas. So if the, the students at Berkeley High want to go to the district office and, and voice their concerns, I think that that is uh, honored. And, and I think that the adults are, that I'm working with and around are, are very aware of the student voices and want to make sure that, that uh, we get input from a variety of sources, not just the adults in the district. Um, and I, I think that that has changed a bit um, when I was growing up in Berkeley, when I was in Berkeley High in the 90s. Uh, I didn't feel like uh, the student body had a, as much say in, as it does now. Um, and that, I don't know why I feel that way. And that might have just been also partly, it's, it's interesting as a 41-year-old looking back at how you experience something as a 14-year-old. Um, and your thoughts and recollections are not necessarily based on facts. <laughs> I think when you're 14 or 15, it's a very emotional <laughs> reaction to things. Um, but I definitely, you know, every meeting I'm in, every time we, we plan, it's like, how can we be more inclusive? How can we get the voices heard that are not being heard? Um, so it, it really seems like that is the number one goal with BUSD is providing uh, a space to hear all voices and especially voices that uh, historically haven't been underrepresented. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I think that's one of the many magic ingredients to the sort of the magic soup of empowerment that I was talking about is how, how much student voices are respected at, in the district. And, um, you know, we saw in the last year, they. Um, uh, they were very upset about some sexual harm that was happening and had been happening for a long time in the district and um, and they didn't feel that their uh, concerns were being taken seriously and they walked out and they made their voices heard very loud and, and I, I think they were taken seriously. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But um, yeah, just an example of, of the kind of thing that is uh, common at, at Berkeley High every year. There's some some something with echoes of that of that great, um, great demonstration. And I, I wanna, so I agree with everything you guys both said, but I wanna add um, that I've been pretty impressed with the elementary school's attention to social justice in the curriculum. Um, you know, I mean, I'm kind of used to it. I grew up in Berkeley, so like, of course, they're gonna, you know, have, um, when they learn history, it's, it's, it's got a good a diversity of perspectives and it's appropriately, you know, they're not learning some BS about pilgrims and you know they're, they're learning the correct history um, and there's a lot of attention to that and um, among the teachers that I, I appreciate but um, it doesn't really I don't really notice it it's just like of course but my husband grew up in Orange County and he didn't really he didn't have that kind of education right he did learn the pilgrim story and, and all that all that stuff so he's always like he's always saying like how impressed he is by um, the sort of amount of social justice that's being really just fed it to them at the at the at the basic level it's really wonderful so that that's something that we're doing very well yeah thanks and i really appreciate you bringing that your that answer back around to the parenting angle because 
that's definitely something, the other part of this that I think is great about having you all on here as the panel specifically is that, again, you, you understand our school district, not just as teachers and not just as alums, but also as parents with students in the district, um, which I think is, is awesome, you know. <laughs> I've added up the years that my family has put into Berkeley Unified, and it is over 50, if you will. <laughs> include all our education and teaching years. Yeah, yeah, and like that's, you know, one of my sort of points of pride as a Berkeley guy is that, you know, my mom was class of 70, I was class of 95, my brother was class of 2008, and those are like very distinct eras in in Berkeley and in the school district. Um, where things change so much in between that it's like you get this really nice sample that of course my you know my aunt my uncles and and now my kids all sort of being in there um, and one thing you, you guys mentioned sort of just looking back at the demographic piece a little bit um, as we hear a lot about California and the country becoming majority minority which is a uh, a phrase that I kind of detest because it, I feel like it obfuscates so many issues that are gonna continue in society. I think one of the really interesting points that you guys touched on is that even if California or even if our district or even if the country is majority minority, that's not necessarily reflected in kids' day-to-day -day lives. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden every kid in America is in school with 38% Latinos and 14% African Americans and 17% Asians or whatever the numbers are, right? And then all of a sudden the, your school population is only 40% white. The school populations are still going to end up being 80% white and 80% or 90% minority somewhere else or 50-50 in another place. But the districts that are losing that diversity are going to continue to lose it no matter what the demographics of the region may be. I mean, for me, the diversity of Berkeley High and whatever we can cling to, to creating anti-racist Berkeleyans. I think that if you segregate the kids, like my sister works in a district that's 90% African-American Latino. And then there's like a few schools that are 90% white within that district. And when you have that kind of separation, you don't learn care for other people because you don't know them. So the hope that I have for our future is that schools like Berkeley that have diversity can continue to really work on creating dialogue and kids who are compassionate about people who are different than themselves. Yeah, school segregation nationally is just, it's atrocious. It's a crime, honestly. Um, and, you know, I happen to work in a district where we don't, we do a really good job, you know, for anyone who doesn't, isn't familiar with um, Berkeley Unified, we actually, um, you know, we have one high school, so it's no problem getting, making sure everybody gets the same high school education because there's only one option but um for the elementary schools we have 11 and we do have you know different kinds of neighborhoods with different levels of affluence and so we we reject neighborhood schools because neighborhood schools is the is the driving mechanism of school segregation and so what we do you know i live in in north berkeley um and my kids go to school all the way in southeast berkeley at malcolm x uh, they just get bust because um they basically that everything just gets mixed up they put all the 
you know, it's complicated, but basically they put them into a pot and they send them everywhere. And the goal is for each elementary school to have the same, um, roughly the same demographics. And it's, it's really, we do a good job, but we're one of the only school districts that does that in the country. And I don't, you know, maybe that's the next iteration of, of the racial justice movement that's happening right now. Um, I would really like to see some attention paid to that. And I don't know, we're doing it right, but everyone else needs to get with the program. <laughs> It seems that the middle school, that's where we're, we're trying to step that up, that, that uh, you know, Kim Willard and Longfellow were not seeing an equal uh, demographic. Um, and so it seems like with, with the elementary school we are, that the next step is to, how do we translate that into uh, a visible outcome in the middle school? Um, I just want to say one more thing. We're doing so many things right, but there still are different outcomes for black and brown kids in Berkeley than there are for white kids. And I think that that that's where our work starts and ends every day. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that, Leah. That was that was left out of, of my diatribe of how great Berkeley is. Mm -hmm. still, <laughs> we're, we're still terrible. <laughs> we but have more work to do. Mm -hmm. But that's, we're that's awfully great. <laughs> That's the whole, that's the whole sort of crux of these issues though, right? Is that you keep trying and you keep iterating and you keep moving, but you have to understand that you're never really done. Um, that's something that I was actually talking to my wife about yesterday is that it's really been great to see white people and school districts and whomever sort of waking up over the last, whether it's the last six months or the last couple of years, and starting to work on some of that internalized racism or unconscious bias or those types of things. But what I've found as a person of color interacting with white people is there are a lot of them who want to then like reach an endpoint and be say like, I'm done, like I, I did it. I'm not racist anymore. Right. And, and now that I'm not racist, nothing I do can be racist. And I don't want to get called out on it because look at all of the stuff that I did. Right. Like I have credentials. And they, so it, there's this approach to being anti-racist that's like going to college and then you get your degree and you're done. And, you know, you can always point to like this thing that you did. Whereas to me, I, I think the analogy is more that being anti-racist is like being an alcoholic where you're always going to have been that person and you always had that upbringing. You always had that inside you and you have to work every day to be anti-racist. And as a school district, we can do some things really well, but we can't just sit back and go like, see, we, we did it. All right. We have to keep iterating. Okay. So I'm going to now let's move into fully into modern times the year 2020, which has been a hundred years. We have to. hundred years long, yeah. I'm gonna traumatize you guys and make you relive last semester uh, as a prelude to talking about next semester. Happy summer vacation. Uh, I'm wondering, so a couple of things, you know, how did last semester go for you? How did it go for your students? And how did it go for your kids? I taught, my math class that I teach is all seniors. And under normal circumstances, they weren't gonna learn a lot 
in the last half of the spring semester. <laughs> so, I mean, not much happened for those students. I did my best, um, but with attendance being optional and everything being pass fail, uh, I didn't, I didn't have that much buy-in um, and they didn't learn that much math. And, you know, I think maybe that's okay. I think uh, I spent a lot of more, more effort um, taking care of their mental health and checking in with them on that level than trying to make sure they knew all the trig, you know, I mean, that just didn't feel important at that time. Um, so, uh, you know, it went okay, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping it's going to be um, more learning will happen in this coming school year. Um, well, for me, I really saw it from all three levels. It was the hardest nine weeks of my life. I had a four-year-old, I had a 12-year-old, and I had a 17-year-old, and he was pretty good. He was pretty self-sufficient, but my other two just needed 100% of my attention, and my 110 freshmen also needed 100% of my attention, and both of each child that I have, both of their parents needed 100% of my attention. So on a regular day, I could deal with 250 emails. Plus, like teaching and figuring out how to put my curriculum online and like literally keep my kids alive because no one was watching the four-year-old while I was teaching. And it was just incredibly hard. So I have a lot of hope for next year that it will be easier somehow now that we've done it for a little bit. But I think that ideally that parents at this point should not be working. I think it is too hard to parent kids, even if they're connected to a Zoom call to their teachers and do your job effectively. So my idea for the world is that everyone takes a sabbatical parents get paid unemployment to teach their kids and they're the social interaction until we get over COVID. And then, as I said before, we go back and do school right once we can be healthy. It's like we know that teachers teach lots of kids. Like my kids obviously are still in elementary school. And so like I'm used to a teacher having whatever it is, 25 or 30 kids or 40 or however many they're jamming in there. Mm -hmm. um but when you say 110 like right it, it makes sense like i taught in a university i know what it's like to have lots of students but that's still that number like it, and some it, teachers it, it, really high have 165 i mean that's an, a reasonable number for a teacher to teach that's a lot of and kids. it's one thing when it's one-on-one -on -one with a kid like you see them in the hall and they're in a big class but the addition of the parents the parent emails from freshmen parents, plus the kids, plus the other teachers that I was coordinating with. It was just a lot of, nothing was smooth. Everything was like, this email, res do some research, respond to this email. And in, in the meantime, like 20 more emails are coming in and there's all this grading you have to do. It was hard, it was very hard. How about you, Michael, teaching a completely different subject, one that really lends itself a lot more to be in person? Uh, what, what was that like? Well, I guess one nice thing about uh, being a music educator now versus 20 years ago is there's so many cool platforms uh, in the tech world that 
help them lend themselves to music education. So a lot of the time I was bringing this stuff into the class and in, and in some ways as an itinerant teacher, I was already kind of traveling and moving about and not having a kind of this, the consistent workspace. So in a lot of ways, it didn't feel hugely different to me. I was able to use a lot of uh, the same materials and the same uh, pedagogical approaches online. Um, so the the big difference, I think, is just how many people participate. Um, you know, you, you have quite a drop off in how many of my 160 students were logging in every week and completing assignments. And so a big push for this next year is how do you get those numbers up and how do you reach the, the students that are most vulnerable? Um, and it just takes a lot. It takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of uh, reaching out. Um, but I think that what I personally believe is that we have to be uh not too hard on ourselves because on top of all of the educational goals um, we're also trying to survive and you know if everybody has a year deficit in their educational experience but they survive i think that that's okay and i think that while we might not be learning some of the stuff that we were hoping to learn this year we're learning a bunch of other stuff. And uh, I think as teachers trying to be aware, um, uh, as Shoshana said, with like, it wasn't time to teach trig. I think being aware of what the students need at the moment is huge. Um, because if you're trying to teach something that's not needed at that moment, um, you, you might as well teach a wall. So I'm, just I, the music team too is just super dedicated all of us have basically been collaborating through the summer and trying to figure out how to make it better and um, that's one of the great things about BUSD is so many music teachers work by themselves but we have our own little school of music teachers I'm, I'm one of 18 music teachers so that in itself um, super helpful when navigating these uncharted waters. Um, and I think this coming year is going to be a little bit better than the last semester because I think we all had more time to prepare for it. I think uh, we've passed, the district has passed out text to a lot of the families. Um, there's still gonna be a lot of problems, but again, I think it's the right call I think health comes before before uh, people in seats in front of other people. You know, one of the, I think the only reason actually that I was able to deliver whatever learning I I could deliver after we we went online, um, and certainly the emotional connection um, and helping students with their isolation. Um, any of that that I was able to do, anything I was able to accomplish was purely because of the relationships that I had built with the students over the rest of the academic year. I mean, for the, the way that I teach math, I teach math to kids who struggle with math. And 
you can't do it without building a strong relationship with them and getting them to trust you and to like you and, and understanding what, what their, what their struggle is and getting them to open up so you can figure out what that is. And I was able to be effective to whatever extent I was able to be effective because of that. And I am terrified going into this new academic year, building 120 new relationships on a computer. It just doesn't seem possible. And I think I'm going to be a really ineffective teacher because I don't, I don't know how I'm going to be able to get to know them. And it's, it's a problem. So that's something that was actually better last year than it will be in the coming year. Yeah, I, I want to add that I think that next year, like we have to figure it out and we have to do our best. But what's so much more important is the year after or the year, whenever we get back, like we have to focus on this because it's so different and none of us really know what we're doing other than what we tried last spring. But this too shall pass. This will be gone and school will be back. So although I'm putting in all my effort right now to make next year workable, I think that we don't we don't want to make next year what the rest of education is like. I think that my, I need to see my kids. I need to be near them. I need to hear them. I need to, I need interaction with them for them to really get the school that we can, the good part of school. I haven't thought too much about it, but uh, the high school kids are so used to having relationships through screen. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, substitute, you know, in IRL, is that what they say? Um, but Did they really uh, say that? I don't know. Maybe they said it 10 years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, that's what, like, that's what, like, I use. Probably no one said it now. Um, so I'm hoping that, that, that it won't be impossible to bond over screen. Since, since kids do it to some degree. Yeah, I teach in a team of four teachers and we all have the same 110 kids and our plan is to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with all 110 kids at the beginning of school year and their parents. Not So I'll have 30. I'll take oh. my piece. <laughs> Each teacher will have 30. But like a a meeting with the parents and the kids to kind of like walk them through the year and try and build that relationship individually. Though, though it is kind of unique when you think about music making because music making, you know, being in a chorus, being in, in, in a band is about that in the same space and time. You know, to do one of those fun Zoom videos that we see is, is 90 hours of video editing. So that's, it's not, it doesn't, it's, it's much more like private lessons than it is like ensemble work uh, in the coming year, I think, as far as music education. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was actually one of the questions that occurred to me when you were, when you were talking earlier, Michael, is I was wondering like, when you were getting together with your students, were you guys actually like, did you have 15 kids in different pains were you actually like playing music or was it more doing theory and then having them work on something on their own and and bring it back to class like what what did music education look like for you 
Yeah, so when we had 15 students on a Zoom, they would all be muted and I would be the only one uh, that could be heard. And so everybody's playing, but because the, the technology is not at the point where you could turn everybody's mics on, there'd be uh, there's a delay. It, it was like a big private lesson. It was not blending all of these voices into one sound as an ensemble because Zoom couldn't achieve that. And then the other uh, app that I was using, um, you assign work from the method books that they're using or the charts that they're playing. And the computer actually records them and then you get sound files back to the teacher uh, that shows how well they did on a given piece. So, um, so I got a lot of information that way. And, and in, and in some ways it held some of my students more accountable than in the past because they had these assignments um, that were going directly into uh, a grade book, which of course I said to pass or fail. But it was just interesting experiencing the difference. Uh, it gave me a lot of information about students that I may not have picked up had I been in a room with 60 of them. They had to actually practice. They couldn't. They couldn't just say like, "Oh yeah, I practiced." If they wanted to. Right. You practice good. It's like now you have to send the sound file over so I can hear you practice. <laughs> exactly. And and Leah, something that you said really hit me in that there's a lot of chatter out there. You know, when I'm driving around listening to NPR, reading the news that there's a segment of people who are either feel like they're being realistic or they are potentially even excited about the idea that like, this is how teaching is going to be. Like we are going to like just go digital and we won't need physical buildings. And, you know, we can just start getting different kinds of education to people all over the place by this being the future. And you seem to be very much, going in the opposite way that this cannot be the future and should not be the future because the human interaction is so important. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier is that schools aren't just like depositors of information into kids' heads and it isn't like an individual process. Learning isn't just about how much you can get in your head. That school needs to provide the school the, the food, the exercise, the health care, the, all these pieces, the socialization and the child care. And we, we cannot do all those pieces online. They're just, those things are required in person. Now, I do think that I am better. I'm more technologically savvy now. I'll be able to use different programs in my classroom. I think that I'm going to get something out of it. And I, I see it as a growing opportunity, but I just... We can't have it be distance learning for the rest of eternity. It's very dehumanizing. The, the five-year-old absolutely is just dying for peers and dying to run around with other kids at the playground and like bump into them and scream in their face or, you know, whatever it is five-year-olds do out there. Um, and and she's, she's the one who's really suffering the most through this time of not being able to go to school. Mm -hmm. you know yeah. because really just so so needs to have other kids around siblings does that help that i think it helps but because of the like these two are two years apart and can totally read 
And so mm-hmm. they have so much to do during the day and their way they play is a little more sophisticated. And with the four year gap between Lou and Yo, that it's it's enough of a lag that they get frustrated with Yo or Yo gets frustrated with them. And Yo can't just sit down with a book at this point and occupies yourself for four hours the way the other two absolutely will. Um, My four-year-old cannot even occupy themselves with a screen for four hours. Like, I can get like 20 minutes of solid screen time before they get like any attention. Like I, I sort of posted online the other day this picture of the floor of my living room with 150 colored pencils scattered on it, 30 of which were blue, and yet these two were arguing, the middle child and the youngest were arguing over a specific one blue pencil that they both wanted to use. It's like, that's where it's like, come on, like the, the they, it helps having siblings, but they're also sick of each other. I think what's hard is you are also trying to work. I think that parents are in a really tough spot of like trying to like manage their kids while they're trying to manage their career. And I think it's just impossible. I don't think we can do that. Well, I would imagine if parents didn't feel the need to have to work and that they could just be with their kids a little bit like how summer is feeling for me, the pressure lets up and you can really teach your kids what you want to, whether it's how to cook or like how we run our house or like what important historical figures we need to learn about. I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to do more than is possible. I'm thinking a little bit about music and, uh, you know, how we consume music. So many of us really only experience music through recordings and our our stereo system. and I was thinking a little bit about how much I enjoy going to see live music. And I think there's some comparisons there with distance learning versus in-class learning, um, where you can get stuff from both, but it's a different experience. You know, it was interesting to hear you guys talk about the challenges of the youngest, the, educating the youngest kids. Uh, my kids are eight and 10, so they're kind of in the sweet spot. They can read and operate the computer on their own. So I don't, I don't connect with that so much, but um, on the other end, there are similar issues for the oldest kids, the ones that I teach, the seniors, or really any, any adolescent, which is, I already touched on this before, but it's about those relationships with the teachers. Um, for me, you know, it certainly doesn't happen with every student, but every year I get maybe five or 10 students that I really connect with. And I can tell, you know, they stay after school, they talk to me about what's going on, talk to me about their love lives, they ask me for advice. Um, I I make these really strong connections. And honestly, it's my favorite part of the job. I don't even, don't tell anyone. I hope no one's going to hear this. Uh, I don't, (laughs) I don't, I don't care about the math so much. I think math is cool. So it's fun to teach it. But what I'm in it for is to, is those, those connections with the, with the adolescents. I love that age. I love that mindset. And I just, I love to just be an adult in their lives. And it just, and I've, I've done a lot of good for some of them. Some of them have, have gained a lot from their relationship with me, I hope. And, you know, they don't all have great relationships with their parents, or they can get something from their teachers that they can't get from their parents. And that's, it's so valuable. And I just, I don't see how it's going to happen for them. You know, it's, it's, they can, yeah, they can manage their stuff in a way that a five-year-old can't, but they, they're not getting something else that they need developmentally. They need connections with adults that they trust that aren't their parents. 
And in in a way, as a teacher, we spend so much time with kids. I was spending five hours a week with each of these kids, and I I know them, and I'm part of their community. And to be on an optional screen call where I one person gets to talk at a time, and no one can see what other people are doing, is it's not the same. That being said, some of my students did much better with distance learning and ones that I did not expect. I think I had some kids who were very just angry a lot at school and the social pressure being gone and just being able to focus on the math. They like really kicked it up a notch and did tremendously well. Yeah, I had a, I had a couple of those too. I'd always check in with them every week and some of them would say, this is the best thing that's ever happened. I never have to go to that place again. We've touched on this a little bit in, in your answers, but obviously, you know, the president and our boss, Betsy, you know, our bosses, 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 boss, whatever. Person our boss, of education. Betsy, is like, they're adamant that we have to go back now, right? And we know we're not going back in the spring or in the fall, but we don't know what that means for the spring. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I'm, would I like you guys to touch on is some of the actual logistical problems with going back with the age groups of kids that you have. Because like I know with my five-year-old, it's the fact that little kids just touch each other and pick their noses and lick their faces. And like, they're just, we know they're germ factories. Like that's just who they are. That's what little kids are. Um, and I know that I think about like myself when I was in high school, if someone was like social distance, you'd be like, oh, sure. Yeah. But you'd still be like making out with your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Right. Like, or hanging out with your buddies and like, we wouldn't take, I wouldn't have taken it that seriously. And so I'm wondering like with the age groups, either that you're raising or that you're teaching, what do you see as the logistical challenges of having to go back, even if it's as soon as spring? I see a tremendous number of logistical challenges. I mean, there are like 3 million teachers and 56 million students, roughly in the United States. And all those people have been relatively distant. And when you put that huge number of people back together, and in the high school level, they're changing groups every period. I mean, I can't teach them history. We're just going to get germed disaster. I mean, so many people are going to get sick. It's a huge number of workers and kids that are going to be in contact with each other. I think the other main problem is that kids may social, like you said, they'll socially distance in the classroom when I put their chairs far apart and never go near them. But as soon as school is out or as soon as it's lunchtime, they're going to go hang out with their friends. So the number of interactions between people is just going to go way up and we see every time that you put lots of people together inside with poor ventilation lots of people get sick being a kid and maybe especially in berkeley is challenging authority and challenging uh rules so on top of that you're going to have a lot of people who don't want to fall in line and do everything as they're told to do um and unfortunately, the consequences are a lot higher uh, when we're talking about COVID versus when we're talking about going to the park instead of going to class or whatever. Yeah, another thing that I see as a, a like when I envision what it would be like 
is, you know, math education's come a long way since, um, certainly since we were in school and even before, you know, we don't, we don't put them in little rows and have them like do stuff on their own anymore. That's not the best way to learn. Um, and, you know, we, we do a lot of group work. We do a lot of interactive stuff. And of course, as a teacher, I'm, you know, in a normal circumstances, I'm going up to each student and looking at their work and, and getting close to them and sometimes taking their pencil and, and uh, you know, making a correction. It, there's, a, there's a lot of physical proximity that's required for a decent, interactive, rich education. That even if we were back in the same room, we can't, we can't achieve it. I mean, I can't even imagine teaching in a mask. It's, it's yeah. a small thing, but like, you know, it's a performance when you're teaching. You've got to keep them interested. And part of it is you've got to have a, they have to be able to see your face. I mean, just that alone sounds impossible to me. If everything was the same, but I had to wear a mask, I still wouldn't want to do it. I'd rather just, I'd rather just be online. I mean, that's how strongly I feel about that. There's, and there's so many things like that where it's like, oh, well, if we have to, do that then what are we even doing how can it possibly work yeah and i think that's a good uh example to the argument that that socially this is we got to get everybody back in because it's hurting kids socially but i don't think anybody's going to the next step saying that if they open everything back up what is it actually going to be like socially it's not going to be like what it was before you know you're going to have five-year-olds who are like immediately pulled apart to not touch and you're going to have it's going to be a very different kind of socialization even when the schools open so uh, i think some people wish oh uh, all the schools should open so we can get this healthy socialization back it's not going to be what we what healthy socialization is even if we open the school yeah and i'm also trying to just imagine michael like in a room with 20 kids just blowing as hard as they can into like tubas and clarinets and just all that <laughs> like, strings and wind like yeah. flying through the enclosed room with the recirculated air like that seems like a disaster it does it really does yeah. i've always said that all i need to teach is like some dirt and a stick but what i've always been leaving out of that is like i need a dirt and no, I need a stick and some dirt and like a group of kids. I need the kids like next to me so that they can see what I'm seeing and I can see what they're seeing. Anything else, it really is, is not right for kids to learn new things in their own little pod. It's not really that different from being on a screen. No, I, what I was imagining is that we would be doing distance learning. Every kid would still have their screen and I would still be looking at their stuff through my screen, but we would just be in a room together. But that's what Trump and DeVos really want is for us to like be in the same room so that parents can go to work so that the economy can be normal. Right. Yeah, I hate to be on the side of Trump and DeVos and I'm definitely not, but that is that is an important difference between the all online scenario and the scenario where we're all in a room looking at screens is that the parents can go to work. So it's got that going for it, but not a lot else. And of course, yeah. the parents are going to go to work where then they're going to be exposed because they work in a tiny office or they work in a restaurant or they work, right. you know. Right. 
Um, plus, plus we all die. I forgot to add that. Right. And that, that's really going to hurt the economy, I got to say. <laughs> so as we sort of start winding down, but we're talking about parents going back to work and especially parents who can't work from home and people going back into schools. Uh, something I wanted to ask you guys about that I feel like hasn't been discussed enough in the sort of broader national conversation about reopening schools is the classified staff. Um, you know, we, we love teachers and teachers get a lot of focus and, and rightly so. Uh, I do personally just feel concerned because I know that having worked in schools as a teacher that the schools don't work without a class, without the classified staff, without the people who keep the building going, without the people who work with the students who need more attention, who need that one-on-one -on -one para, who need, you know, other additional services, without the people in the cafeteria, without, you know, and those are the people who are the lowest paid and who work a lot of hours like everyone else and who are exposed to kids a lot like everyone else and who I think don't really get thought about or talked about very much. Um, and so just as, as teachers, what is sort of the, uh, what does the classified staff sort of mean for you? And what is all of this reopening, do you think, mean for them? Because they're really the ones we're talking about, about like parents have to go back to work. That's, I think they're a good example of that group. Yeah, and they're going to get exposed to the virus and a bunch of them are going to die. And that's a big problem. Or have long-term health impairments. I think for me, one of the things that isn't talked about that scares me, the, talked about as much that scares me the most is that they're finding when they do autopsies on people who've died of COVID, even people who've only had it a few days have major brain damage. And so that there's this chance that even these asymptomatic people are getting brain damage and we'll find out about it in 20 or 30 years. I think that it's just a very scary disease and to rush through to get us back in school so the economy can take off is kind of short-sighted. I think this is a time that we need to think of big structural systemic changes universal basic income, pay people to stay home right now. We don't need to make low wage jobs just to keep people alive. We could pay them and allow people to explore like their passion in life. I think we need to change the economy. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I am concerned though, um, if we stay, let's say we stayed online for the whole year, I don't know the answer to this. Are is the janitorial staff are they going to be paid or are they going to get laid off? Because yeah. I, I don't know, and I I hope the district will and and their union, which is pretty good, um, will will make sure that they those people continue to get their living wage, um, such as it is. Uh, even if they can't come to work, I'm, I'm, I hope our, our union needs to be um, supporting them to make sure that they can get all these jobs. Last quarter, my brother-in-law is a sub in the district, and he was paid for the whole mm -hmm. semester or the whole quarter, even yeah. though he didn't do any work. Yeah, I think that ours were for for this year, but for the last year, 
but I don't know for sure that that's going to continue, especially with the budget crunch. But I haven't seen the, any proposals to lay people off. So I, I hope that they at least still get paid and then can just stay home and be safe. That's that's my, my greatest wish. Yeah, I mean, that's that goes in line with what I was saying. We just need to pay people to stay home. We need to, yeah. And we really need to think about distance learning, whether, I don't know, I need to talk to teachers and make sure that we're not just creating busy work so that we can claim to be taking care of kids, that, that we provide something valuable. Some of the some of the BUSD uh, staff is still reporting and still doing some of these jobs uh, through throughout this time. Right, you can't just let these buildings sit, come back to like you know an inch of dust coating everything. Uh, My classroom is going to yeah. be a mess. <laughs> still, so that's the thing they're talking about cutting funding while we ramp up all of these things to make the, the school site safer. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I think about the number of things in my classroom that get shared, like pencils and scissor and tape and crayons and Chromebooks and like the number of touch things that I can't provide a kid anymore in a distance learning situation or a in-person learning situation makes it seem impossible. So, so many of my kids come without a pencil every day. I teach computer science. You think those kids are bringing their own computers? No. No, they're <laughs> in in the week before uh, the school shut down. We were getting pretty like so. It occurred to me at some point, like, oh, a lot of people touch those keyboards every day. This might, you know, we were aware that the virus was around, and we ended up getting uh, some Lysol wipes somehow. Finally. And uh, yeah, well, we had like two jars of them, and I was having the students wash their hands before come I would stop them at the door and say go back and wash your hands and come back don't touch anything and then I would have them wipe down the thing I mean we did all this stuff just to try to keep people from getting sick and it would be like that every day forever because <laughs> they're touching the keyboards don't touch. I, can't, I don't think I'm gonna ever look at like helping a fourth grader put their read back on um, their mouthpiece and touch all these things that have to live and spit on them as a as a wind teacher. No, wind, wind instruments are canceled forever, man. It's yeah, no. It's violins. It's all string, string orchestra from now on. There's drums, yeah, like anything, but only with like sticks or the big sticks or whatever. Body percussion. There you go. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to join me today for this. Uh, I think it was a really good discussion and I think it's something that uh, really will interest people and has application outside of our own town. Um, so it's going to be an interesting semester. I will also just put in the plug that as a person who has kids in our district, knowing you guys and knowing all of the wonderful teachers and staff that we have, it, it makes me at least know that we're gonna do the best that can be done and that things are gonna turn out as whatever, I'll put it this way, whatever happens, it's not gonna be lack for effort, it, for a lack of effort and care. And I appreciate that, so thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. All right. Good luck to us all. <laughs> The Interdisciplinary Life podcast was written and directed by Roberto Santiago. Our theme song is David Koresh by Abundant Society, all produced in association with NTDL Productions.
recording.